Hi, Kristen. <clears throat> um, hi again, Paul. And hi, Janali is joining now. Give her a minute to get here. Okay, um, let's get underway. Um, okay, so you've, you may just have, um, <clears throat> I've just published the feedback for assessment one a couple of hours ago, I think. Um, if you haven't already seen it, it's there. Um, if you if you want to ask me questions about that, feel free to email me. Um, has anyone here opened their assignment one feedback yet? Kristen, yes, and you've got a smiley face. So does that mean you're happy with your marks? Um, and Paul, you've got yours. Not quite, always can do better. Still smiling, though, that's good. Um, yes, uh, there, there was discussion about whether or not to include reference details. Yep. Um, I, oh, you did too, Ben. Bloody hell. Yeah, okay. All right. This is my fault. Okay, Ben, Ben, send me an email about it. Um, whoever, whoever, Jonathan, said you should have put a reference. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> everyone. Okay. All right. Send me your feedback, and I'm checking with Jonathan. Look, that's my fault because we've had quite a few discussions, as you know, on the discussion board. I said, I, I said certain things about don't worry about including references for these. Jonathan is uh, is a very good marker, but he, um, like all casual university staff at the moment, there's been a lot of uncertainty about his recruitment. You've heard the stories, I'm sure, about uh, casual staff losing jobs, lack of notice um, for staff. Like John, Jonathan still isn't actually officially employed as the marker in the subject, even though it's week three. And marking started from yesterday. And because of all those issues, I've been toing and throwing with him and university admin about, uh, you know, just sorting out his recruitment and all these spreadsheets and all this rubbish, frankly, bureaucratic rubbish um, that I have to do um, and he has to do. So in, because of that, I didn't fully update him about that discussion. Um, so don't be concerned. I'll readjust your marks. It'll be a very slight difference that would have made anyway. But uh, send me your feedback if you've got that. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll review it. Okay? Is that all right? Good, thank you. And again, apologies. Sorry. Yes. Oh, that's your, you, Kristen. We heard your voice. Can I ask you a question, Andrew? Yes, Kristen, yeah. I'm here. <laughs> um, so just wondering then, um, going forward, just so we make sure we've got it right, is it just you can just include an in-tech citation rather than have a full reference list? Yes, that is the case. That's the decision I made. Unfortunately, I didn't update Jonathan on that um, <clears throat> in time before he marked the first one. Uh, one. So he's made that comment on a few. Um, I don't think it will have affected the mark significantly, but I'll check with him. I'll ask him if it does. If it has, it would have been, you know, a percent, a, sm a fairly small percentage point. But I'll double check all of them individually with him and um, adjust your marks accordingly. Um, is that okay, Kristen? Good, thank you. Okay, so, and uh, Ben, Janali, Kristen, and Paul. Ben, um, okay. So we'll sort that out. Um, but that is the case. You don't need to worry about the reference list, and we'll adjust the week one ones um, to fix that miscommunication. Okay, so this week we're looking at Britain, Britain and Europe, um, Brexit. And um, the three questions are, why did Britain vote to leave? <clears throat> why did the Labour Party long oppose being part of the European Union and its predecessors, but then become positive about the idea? And why do so many on the right of politics in Britain not want it in the European Union? Um, so the first question, why did Britain vote to leave the European Union. Any thoughts, key reasons? Feel free to chip them in now. Uh, no one wants to go first. Okay, what what about in terms of the readings? Okay, um, McShane, McShane's book chapter, The Regulatory Burden of the EU, thank you Paul. Okay, regulatory burden of the EU. Um, 
before, let's put that up, Kristen, Janali and Ben, would you agree that that was one issue? The EU seen as over-regulating Britain, um, shackling it with uh, alien confines, the great British entrepreneurial spirit being strangled by Brussels, is that kind of thing? Immigration, Paul, right, that's the second one. Immigration, all right. Okay, thank you, Paul, for those. Um, okay, uh, Kristen, Kristen is reconnecting, so she's having some connection issues. Ben and Janali, can I ask you, um, if I ask, well, I, think, I think those both two are in the mix, immigration and the, the notion of the EU as being a regulatory burden. Um, do either of you want to comment on those? Um, Janali, can you hear me okay? can't hear you, Janelle. If you can hear me, um, can you please check if you're unmuted? And looks like your connection's different. You are in Sri Lanka. A long way away. Um, Janelle, if you can hear me. Yep, uh, sorry, sorry. Okay, Janelle, did you hear the question about what key reasons why Britain left the European Union voted? The majority of British people turned out in 2016, voted to leave. Um, uh, yes. Um, I feel like both the reasons and there are more reasons to it, especially economically. And um, they might have felt like the EU is ripping them off and all these uh, other countries where they accept immigrants such as Germany and then they try to immigrate to UK afterwards. So it's going to be a burden on them. With all these reasons, I feel like that is why um, UK decided to leave. <clears throat> okay, good point. Now, can you tell me, Sri Lanka, does it have history as a historical link to the British Commonwealth? Um, it does, especially I think since we were a colony of Britain, so we do. Yes, I thought as much. Um, when I was younger, we knew Sri Lanka as Ceylon. Um, yes. It was renamed in the late 1970s. Um, and that was one of many countries around the world that was part of the Great British Empire. Australia was another, India was another. Um, which the sun was never going to set. But 102 years later, some of those people voting in Britain, I don't know if you were alive in 1914, they might have felt that Britain's historical uh, record as a great power had been compromised by being part of the European Union. Um, I'm sorry, Andrew, I can't actually get you through. I, I, I barely can hear you. Okay. I'm really sorry. Can you hear me now? Uh, can you hear me now? Much better? Okay, good. Something yep, better. much better. Thanks, Kanali. Yes, sir. Sri Lanka, um, as part of the old British Empire, it became a Commonwealth. Um, of course, some members of, some people from those countries, when Britain was, when it was an empire, even when it was a Commonwealth, much immigration to Britain has actually been from, not from the European Union, but rather from former Commonwealth countries, including Sri Lanka, probably more numerously from uh, India and Pakistan. So if there was anti-immigrant sentiment in Britain, um, I'm not sure how rational it was to leave the European Union, because much of the immigration has come from sources, nothing to do with the European Union, but to do with Britain's own historical record. Do, do voters who are concerned about immigration, are they very rational or do they see any immigrants as all the same? Um, could some people have been voting to leave the European Union for irrational reasons, thinking that would stop? Um, stop immigration from other places besides Europe. 
Um, I I miss you here. Like I can't hear so certain places. Okay, I'll keep going. Um, Janali, just just while I speak now, Janali, can you please mute your mic? Thank you. Um, there's a bit of background from your end. Um, background noise. Um, so my question is, okay, to all of you, it's prompted by the fact that Janali Sri Lankan and, and the British Empire and Commonwealth as distinct from the European Union. And when, when Britain first went into the European Union in, uh, it's okay, Janelle. Um, when Britain first went into the European Union in the 1970s, um, Australia actually felt very left left out. Australia felt that, you know, here was a country that, that many of them had ancestral links to, that uh, we'd helped after the Second World War, rebuild, we traded um, to, with them a lot, and they'd they'd left us behind. We were still in the Commonwealth, but they'd made their economic choice to go in with the European economic community. Um, <clears throat> is some of the sentiment about anti-immigrant in Britain that led to Brexit, is some of it trying to hark, hark back to a glory day of the old British Empire, perhaps? Sorry. Um, I think uh, it's to do a lot with the fear of the unknown, which is seen in a lot of countries. So you see in Australia and America, there's all this anti-immigration and it's just the fear of the other. I'm not sure if it's more wanting to go back to those days where it was um, imperialism and colonialism, but it's just a generalised fear that's grown in Western countries. Okay, good. Um, uh Immigration. Nigel Farage was the leader of the UKIP, United Kingdom Independence Party, which was very prominent in um, the campaign. One of the controversial things that happened in the campaign was that a few days before the vote, he unveiled a huge banner showing many asylum seekers queuing up as if they were about to swamp Britain. And so that was seen as playing to these fears of immigration. But does that mean the British people, those who voted to leave the European Union are, are racist in many cases or are more racist than they used to be? Potentially. Thank you, Ben. Is racist too strong a word? He used the term xenophobia, Christian. Xenophobia is maybe a better word than racism. Xenophobia, I think, literally translated means fear of outsiders. Um, and can someone tell me what racist explicitly means? The term's banded around. What does racist mean? If you call someone a racist, what are you accusing them of? Well, their, their racial heritage being inferior or in some ways bad, as 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 um, contrasted with with the with your own, I would say. It's a specific attack on someone's heritage. Yes, and the word inferior is very important here. So racist strictly means a belief that one race is superior and another is inferior. So Hitler was a, was a clear racist who believed that Aryans were superior to dark-skinned people, that Jews were a terrible um, blight on humanity, gypsies, uh, and so on. That is racism. That's a very extreme view. And sometimes the term racism is used to describe people who may not subscribe to that kind of explicit ideology, but maybe, well, what, what do you say to people who um, are unfamiliar with different cultures? And so if someone, if, if someone lives in a community that's fairly monocultural and starts changing, but people from other cultures move in, is it not unreasonable that some of those locals might feel that... Um, things are changing and they feel a little bit unsettled. Is that a reasonable thing to happen? A feeling to have? Unfamiliarity can lead to racism. It is fear of the other. Thank you, Kristen. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's a, a reasonable a reasonable response, but it's um, certainly um, with with regards to following up with what Kirsten was saying before, it's um, it's a it's a potential response. Depending upon how how they how they how that person views it and through what prism they view it. Yeah. 
that makes sense. Many places in Britain have become very multicultural. Cities like London. Has anyone here been to London? Ben, Kristen, Shinali, Paul, and you all have. Right. So you know, having visited London, um, how multicultural it is. Of course, one of the pitfalls um, of going to a place like London is you, you, you may see other tourists more than you see locals. It's, 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 what, it's the world's biggest tourist destination, I think. Um, uh, and you walk around the London CDB, melting pot is one. Melting pot is a term that was used to describe New York City's in their era of mass migration too in the uh, late 19th, early 20th centuries. But yes, London is very cosmopolitan, multicultural, and many see that as a good thing. London was, yes, thank you, Kristen. London, London as uh, was pointed out in one or more of the readings, people in London voted to stay in the EU much more than people in other parts of the country. So London voted to remain, and we'll look at the geography of the vote, the lecture I'll give tomorrow, which will be available to you from tomorrow afternoon. Um, perhaps because Londoners like being in a thriving, bustling, cosmopolitan city. Although even in London, there are parts, um, if you look at the boats, um, parts of the old East End, which is also now multicultural, that uh, there's hostility to migrants. And this is, these are areas where anti-immigrant type parties like UKIP, even, even fascist type parties have some support. Um, so, Tension over immigration. Um, we saw when we talked about Germany that there's been a backlash to some extent against Merkel's acceptance of so many Syrian asylum seekers, but not one that's led to an electoral change of government uh, or in things like decisions to leave the EU. So we'll, we'll look at immigration. Any other comments on immigration um, to the extent uh, it, it was an issue? What about the European regulatory burden? What did you mean exactly by that, Paul, when you put those words there? I think it. Um, I think it, uh, the the take back our borders, whilst whilst um, certainly being strongly um, anti-immigrant, it also um, you know created this uh, or or, or uh, espoused this view that um, there weren't not only control of people but also trade. And, and, and their ability to have regulatory sovereignty, which is, um, in, in a couple of the readings, I can't remember which one at the moment. But, um, this idea that the, that the, um, being part of the EU was a negative sum game for the, for the, for the UK, for Britain, that, that the, the costs were greater than the benefits and that, um, that's, that's one of the, the reasons that they wanted to leave. And, and I think a, a big part of that was, um, and a contrast to the city of London, well, the city of London is a populist voting against the, um, against leaving, but it's also with regards to the financial regulation in the city of EU, which is what I think they wanted to avoid, um, from the, from the, from the EU, um, re, uh, re regulating more on the city of London. Sorry. Yes. Now, just to clarify terminology, and I might, I may have done this too, slippage, um, the phrase the City of London is used by Londoners to refer to um, the old square mile of London, um, which is now the financial district. They often refer to it as the city in the same way that uh, in New York they refer to Wall Street as being the financial district. When I say the City of London uh, overall voted to stay, I probably should say the, the metropolitan capital as a whole, Greater London, Greater London is a better term, not the mile square old city where the financial district is. Um, but let's talk about that trade issue for a moment. Okay, that Paul mentioned, trade. Okay, so what do we normally hear from political leaders about trade? Can, can nations uh, restrict trade or is that not possible? They can if they want to um, experiment with the autarky, <laughs> um, but um, you know it's 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 
autarky is complete self-sufficiency. So you, you, you have, um, everything you produce and everything you consume, you produce within your own country and you don't rely on any, um, trade or external, um, entity to, to help you provide that for your country. So, um, I can't think of an example these days. North Korea, maybe, might be, might be a, a good, although they trade with China. Autarky is often used to suggest people are trying to become hermit kingdoms. Um, it's not seen as very favourable or rational, of course. But that, that's exactly what I'm getting at, is that the idea of countries cutting themselves off from international trade or, you know, even restricting free, free trade is often preached as a bit of a gospel. And that's part of being a liberal market economy. Um, so there's, there's an issue there. But also, what, what positive benefits might... British people have gained in terms of trade from being in the European Union? Can you think of any things that might positively have occurred from being uh, part of the same economic arrangement with France and Italy and so on? I can think of some. I mean, you know, if I was in Britain, I'd, I'd be pretty appreciative of the fact that French champagne costs a lot less when Britain was in the European Union than, if, than when it was out. Because you're part of the common economic, so less tax on imported goods, exactly. So the the diversity of Europe, that, that includes access to those German manufactured goods we talked about last week. So Britain was probably getting quite a few benefits and, and, uh, uh, and enjoying those, but perhaps not realising that they might lose some of those. Um, now, Christians put in less red tape in products, on products in terms of regulations. That certainly is a common complaint by supporters of Brexit, that, that the EU was, had tying British industry, the British economy, into too much red tape. One controversial area was in, in terms of regulating wages and uh, trade unions. Um, one of the reasons, as we'll see, that the British Labour Party went from being anti-EU to... Um, uh, pro-EU was because the Thatcher era in Britain in the 1980s reduced the power of trade unions and the European social chapter uh, negotiated in the 1990s restored some of those rights and minimum wages and that, that annoys those who want freer markets and reduced union power, so business interests. Now let me just check these chat comments quite a few have come in here. Um, that last one from Ben, I think. Um, ben, yeah. Okay, so logistical issues, freight, mail, were a lot easier when there was no trade border. Okay. So, Ben, are you saying that now that Brexit is, has happened officially and is being implemented, that Britain might experience less access, less quick um, deliveries and so on, and, and transportation? I'm thinking everywhere from just the daily stuff of, you know, um, someone sending a package to Germany, um, you know, they didn't need a customs form before, now they do. Um, and then you, when you multiply that on a, you know, like a multinational level, it's actually the the regulation and I guess the administrative burden kind of argument seems to go out the window a bit. Um, I do understand that was a big part of people's, um, you know, desire to leave the EU, but at the same time, I think they're realising now that so much of their export, you know, it's such it's like their biggest export market, I believe. I think it was something like up to fifty percent in one of those articles. And um and now they're sort of realizing the the implications of, of sending those same amount of goods over. Um it's like a whole nother regulatory burden of its own. Yes. Those of you we all you've all been to London, so you all pretty uh went to either Heathrow or Gatwick airports. And um you may it's been a while since I've been in London, actually, but uh, I always noticed, as many other travellers from Australia, they had to wait in a longer line because they were, they were not from an EU country. Um, EU nationals went through quickly in London. Has anyone else noticed that when you travelled into the through the Britain? Yeah, they've got the fast track lanes, which I was always jealous of. Jealous of, particularly as, you know, given that we, um, you know. Uh, we fought with them in the wars and so on 20 years ago now, Paul. But yes, it's been um, so presumably Londoners, sorry, British people, when they go to European countries now, will have to queue up longer to come home by the same logic. Um, uh, 
I mean, Australia has a strange relationship with Britain. I mean, we sometimes refer to it as the mother country. Of course, we like beating them in the cricket. Um, and so we, we like thinking that we were the convict offspring who made good. You know, they rejected us, but then we, you know, we did better, we respected. But we still, I think there's a lot of uh, a strong pull to visit London, which you probably all, one of the reasons you've probably all been there. Um, will British people possibly now experience some of the downsides of not being in the European Union? I think one of the problems is that uh, the representation of red tape in the media of the European Union has sometimes been exaggerated significantly. Now, I don't normally preview the lecture, but examples in the lecture I'll give tomorrow there's been Murdoch media tabloid stories, false, just completely false stories over the years, saying things like the EU is going to ban Scottish kilts because, you know, it's offensive. Um, it's going to um, ban pints of beer because it doesn't suit their measurements. And it's going to ban <coughs> bends in bananas. It wants them all straight. Now, these are all just complete fabrications. But, you know, it can be printed on the front page of a quality newspaper as it was the News of the World, which had to close in disgrace, of course, a couple of years ago for hacking into the um, <coughs> phone of a murdered schoolgirl. Um, so the media has often misrepresented the European Union. And in doing so, is there anything News Corp won't print? Um, we'll come, yes, we'll come to that. Um, uh, in doing so, it, I think it has tapped into that, what I was alluding to earlier about that vein of prejudice, the idea that Great Britain has been undermined and sapped from within by these upstarts who don't really appreciate the true spirit of the nation. Um, what positive things can we um, associate with Britain? I mean, what, 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 if we do ask, <clears throat> what is distinctive about British culture and society that we, we like? Puff pieces on Marxist. Oh, you're talking about News Corp there, Paul, I think. Yep. Um, yes, anti-Marxist. Everyone's a Marxist to the, um, the writers. I don't read the Australian. It's absolute crap. Um, uh, I don't bother. Um, what do we like about Britain? I mean, the fact you've all visited there, do you like British television? Any of you? Not especially. I don't like Lake. Um, I like the Lakes District. That was quite beautiful, I might say. Um, I did love London. I loved. I loved the multiculturalism of London. I loved. I loved how busy it was, and you know, the little streets make it seem even, even more pushed up against you. It's a. It's it, there's a real atmosphere to London, and and I think it's it's. It is absolutely a consequence of the, the you know, that melting pot that I was saying before. BBC, Kirsten, yes. Kristen, sorry, yes, BBC, yeah. Um, but, um, it, it's, it's, you know, like I, 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 I didn't feel, you know, and, and I suppose it's, it's, it's probably a, 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 a take on, on being, being Caucasian that when I went to the, um, countryside, I didn't feel like I was, you know, going, Anywhere different or was treated any differently, but you know that's that's probably my white privilege talking as well. You know that. Um, yes. So as an Australian in the rural parts of England, you felt you were treated well because you were white and you seemed similar. Yeah, I think so. I mean, either that or I'm just a really nice guy. People like me. <laughs> um, does anyone here watch? I'll come back to the BBC and British Time, but an Australian TV. Um, show that's been running for a very long time. Does anyone here watch Neighbours? Did you ever watch Neighbours? I thought some of you might have as adolescents. No, Paul, no. You can tell the truth, you know. Um, okay. And Ben said all his favourite British stuff is a product of immigrants. Jamaican sound system, culture, curry, miling, Hanchester. His partner watches Neighbours. Paul did a long time ago. Um, then and your partner's dad. Okay. The reason I mention it is because when Neighbours started, which was in the 1980s, and Kylie Minogue and Jason Donovan were on it, it was it was extremely popular in Britain. It may still be actually. I mean, Brit British people were intrigued by things like calling the way Australians call university uni, stuff like that. And there's actually even like in the same way that we go and have double decker bus tours of London, there are even British people coming out and doing 
bus trips to, to where that Ramsey Street was filmed. Neighbours, hard to believe, I know. But, but one of the issues that came up there was that Neighbours in those days, the cast was very white. It may still be, I'm not sure. But there was an argument that it may have been appealing to British people uh, presenting a sort of very white monocultural group before their country was transformed so much by multicultural immigration in the 1970s, 1960s. Um, not sure how valid that argument is, but th there were some serious work done on it, like cultural studies type articles, if you want to look those up. But the BBC is mentioned by Kristen. Now, which, Kristen, what BBC do you think you like? Do you like the news, um, the current affairs? Do you like uh, the things that are on Channel 2, I suppose, like Grand Designs shows, um, Antiques Roadshow, or what do you like? They have some good dramas, like I was into Sherlock when I was younger. That was really good. Just though, It's just very good quality um, drama production storylines. Um, and I, I love British crime shows. I can't get enough of them. But you know, not all of them. I think Midsummer Murders is rubbish. But um, yeah, some, there's some, been some very good. One of the best ones in recent years was um, Happy Valley. Um, they, they're often very gritty. And the, the, the best ones, I think, are in the north of England and sometimes Scottish. Very gritty, pretty bleak, um, but really absorbing. Docos, Paul mentioned. So, yes, Doctor and David Attenborough's documentaries, perhaps, on nature. I don't like Midsummer Murders, personally. I think it's really predictable, boring. Um, I don't, I don't think it's got a good plot or you know any surprise value. But there's another one that's on that my wife and I um, we just paid extra to upgrade Foxtel to put BBC First onto our sports package, um, so we could watch the series four of a series called Unforgotten, which is another British crime show. Um, we saw episode one last. Wednesday, I'm looking forward to tomorrow night. Um, all right, so why is this relevant? Well, obviously, Australians and Brit Britain have a lot of shared um, historical culture in many cases. And, well, I mean, a lot of people would have praised British comedies in the past. Um, more recent examples might include ones like Black Adder, uh, Ben Elton, Rowan Atkinson, comedians like that. When I say recent, recent to me, but um, British comedy, the British Gospel Centre is having a capacity to laugh at themselves more so than Americans, and being quite inventive and humorous. Monty Python, yes, was a classic, yeah, but some pretty pretty major comic successes. So I don't want to uh, be too critical of Brexit, because I, I see many positives there. But I think um, Brexit reflects a lot of uncertainty um, about the future, and we've touched on some of the reasons. Um, we've touched on some of the most important reasons, economic uh, desire for some separation and immigration. What about the changing views of the Labor Party? Why did the Labor Party, I might have partly given some of the answer before, but why did the Labor Party become so anti-Europe, sorry, go from being so anti-European to being overwhelmingly pro-European between the 1960s and the 1990s? Uh, you will have read, <coughs> I hope, um, Linton Robbins extract 10 pages or so, the Reluctant Party, Labor and the European Economic Community, 1961 to 1975. So in those days, it was actually a Conservative Prime Minister that took Britain in, and Labor was more opposed to the idea. Could it be because many of Europe's social democratic policies have worked really well? And wouldn't that... Okay, so what you're saying there, Ben, is that British Labor... Um, wouldn't British Labor have liked... Oh, yes, okay, so you're saying... British Labour became more pro-Europe because European social democracy was working well. It saw things there that it liked. Is that what you're saying, Ben? Yeah, I think that maybe prior to, to Brexit, um, uh, well, maybe Labour, you know, saw that there wasn't really a commonality with, uh, with the EU market or with the European market, like maybe other facets of um, the British government did. And I'm just thinking that perhaps, you know, once it all came to fruition, they saw they saw that there were some benefits there that aligned with their own agenda in um in the UK and I guess in that later period, sort of, you know, post eighties, um the Thatcher era really, you know. Maybe when they felt dissatisfaction in their own country, they they, they looked for models where they thought things worked better. Yes, I think that's true. And um 
one of the things, uh, any, other, any other comments on that, why Labor, the, le the left side of politics changed um, from anti-Europe to pro-Europe? Um, the 1980s was the era of Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister, and uh, trade unions then were felt under attack, the miners' strike. All right, so there's an audio problem again. Okay, let me try. Can you hear me better now? Is it the way I'm speaking, perhaps? Can you hear me better now, Ben? Yes, all right. Maybe it's me fading off a bit. Sorry, I could just be a bit tired and drifting away a bit. Um, I'll focus on being clearer. Um, so, yeah, where was I? Good Lord. Thatcher and the unions, right. The miners' strike in 1984-85 was a very violent, long-running dispute. Thatcher decided to reduce the power of the coal miners' union. And it, it, there was blood on picket lines, there were deaths and so on. There was also another big strike involving the, Rupert Murdoch and his newspapers. Actually, Rupert Murdoch took over many newspapers in Fleet Street, the old Fleet Street, uh, which you would have first encountered probably playing Monopoly. Is that correct? Did you all play Monopoly as kids? Yep. So we all became familiar with the geography of London. Um, Fleet Street was the home of the newspaper industry and many of the papers were printed there the old typesetting uh hot metal presses were there journalists were there and printers and so on and <clears throat> rupert murdoch decided to he took over the times and the sun and the news of the world and he decided to move all of those papers out of fleet street into a new facility uh purpose-built at the thames the place called on the thames of the place called Wapping. And it was, it was partly to break the power that the print unions had, um, which he saw as restrictive. So um, I guess he was a classic example. He, Rupert Murdoch and Thatcher were free marketeers who wanted to reduce union power to break free of their restrictive practices. And those people, Thatcher, Murdoch, Boris Johnson, would similarly see the European Union as trying to impose those kinds of restrictions on free marketeers like them capitalists, if you like. Um, and and for, for precisely that reason, that capitalists were becoming more anti-European and reducing the power of unions, unions and labour were becoming more pro-European. That's the key point, I think, that the European Union offered a, a bit of a sanctuary for trade unions and was seen as more social democratic than Britain in the 1980s. Andrew? Yes. Um, do you think, do you think that, um, cause la later in life Thatcher became, um, uh, uh, anti-EU. She, she sang one of the readings. She wrote a book about it and, um, and became anti, anti-EU. Do, do you think that's because, um, you know, like it, it, it seems, it seems, um, obvious to me that she took the position to be pro-EU in the first place to, to be an opposition to the Labour Party who were, or, or to differentiate themselves from the Labour Party, I should say. Um, but then when she realised that the um, EU was going to be, um, well, worker-friendly, for want of a better phrase, um, she she reversed course. Do you think that's reasonable? Yeah, I think that's right. The chronology is certainly there. The, the EU, as it's now called, became more, started moving more to the left, if you like. Jacques Delors was a key figure in it, a French former finance minister who was a leading figure in the European economic community who started emphasising things like social policy, worker protection and so on. And he came to Britain in the 80s and spoke to the Trades Union Congress, which was historically Eurosceptic, and they cheered him because they, he was promising them relief from Thatcher's anti-union policies. In fact, the, one, of, one of Murdoch's delightful front-page tabloid headlines was when Thatcher rejected something Jacques Delors said, and the headline was, Up Yours. The laws, beautiful poetry stuff, isn't it? You know, real, real classy, intellectual public policy. Thatcher was anti-EU. I guess she probably couldn't have anticipated 
the extent to which that would go on and lead to Brexit. She probably would have supported Brexit, yes. Um, her predecessor as Conservative Party leader, Edward Heath, was a completely different type of person. He was a much more centrist, moderate person who, uh, it's a bit like the difference between, I guess, Tony, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, the small L liberal, and Tony Abbott, the, or Peter Dutton, on the other hand, um, the, the more right-wing people in the Liberal Party. Um, so as the EU drifted to the left and Thatcher took Britain to the right, there was more and more conflict. Um, does that make sense to people? Are there any questions about what we're covering here, what we've, what we've said so far? Um, Janali, can you hear me now? Good, thank you. I'm, I'm sorry my voice was way, uh, drifting off before. Okay, Ben, the, the miners' strike era also created three generations of unemployment in parts of England's north. That's a very good point. Now, how do you know that, Ben? Um, I lived in Manchester for a time, and um, what I found was that certain parts of, I guess, that northern part of England were still uh, feeling the effects of that era, and there was still this... Uh, F word, Thatcher, <laughs> general consensus going on by grandkids of, you know, or kids or grandkids or people who were affected by this era. Um, and I guess, you know, one positive that's come out of it is, you know, a, a super vibrant counterculture and, um, and all that. But it's not, it's interesting where those people sit. Like I've found that the ones I've stayed in contact with have been, um, super, uh, super anti Brexit. Um, but then like super anti-immigration in other senses. So it's this really interesting, like if you would draw it down the middle, you think that, um, you know, staying part of the European Union, um, you know, to, to solidify the relationship and that, you know, encourage, um, you know, um, uh, cultural diversity or whatever, however you want to say it, you know, the, the, the continuing story of all that. But then they also have this kind of, you know, super like left-wing, um, you know, anti-Tory government uh, type uh, feeling as well. Great. That's really good, your, your lived experience there. Um, and one of the ironies is that many of those economically left-wing but socially conservative, it's quite possible to be both. So even those uh, people who hate Thatcher and her memory from um, the miners' strike in the north of England, some of them, however, appear to have voted for um, Brexit. That's, that, in fact, Brexit would not have succeeded, I don't think, and the red wall fell. Thank you, Paul. I'll show some of the, the map. There is a map on the illustrations uh, among the resources on the cloud, and I'll go into that in more detail. But the big, the big reason, in my opinion, that Brexit got to a majority was that there was always going to be a strong Conservative Party vote for it from the blue... In, in Britain, like Australia, blue is the conservative or right side of politics, red is the left from blue uh, uh, Britain. But some of those areas like Yorkshire, um, uh, particularly that were Labour voting seats, um, voted to leave the European Union. And I think they this was an opportunity for, for voters to lash out at someone. Referenda don't normally come along, of course. So here was a chance for everyone to vote on an issue and make a protest. And the protest might not have actually been about the specifics of the European Union. It was just a chance to express anger. And what exactly were they voting on? So some of those people who voted for Brexit might have been pe people who thought they were voting against Thatcher or the coal miners. Uh, or what was done to the commoners back in the day. Stick it to the establishment, indeed. Paul has looked at the Goodwin and Heath reading, which shows the socioeconomic nature of those who voted for Brexit in key areas. Yes, there is historical hatred, but that can sometimes come out in strange forms. I mean, look, does anyone here, Paul, you might remember, the rest of you are probably too young, but the Republic referendum in Australia in 1999, yeah, I remember it well. I was um, my 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 uh, coming of age is about <laughs> actually. 
So that, you know, we don't have many referenda in Australia. That, that was the last one we had. Of course, a lot of people, well, there was an attempt to have a referendum on gay marriage by the Conservatives in the Howard government, I saw the Abbott government, who were trying to, well, which was, which people like Penny Wong opposed because they were worried it was going to lead up to a, um, a whipping up of homophobia, homophobic feelings. Referenda, the idea of citizens voting on issues is not the way our parliamentary democracy generally works. We normally elect parliamentarians to be our representatives. And they look at the complexity of the issues and they decide in government, in opposition and so on. And if we don't like their overall performance, we vote them out. So referenda uh, are unusual. And when they come along, perhaps a whole lot of other miscellaneous issues get caught up. Um, I think that's what often happens. And it ha in the Republic referendum, for example, um, people felt that they were being pushed to, many people who liked the concept of Australia being independent from Britain and having its own, our own head of state, a governor general being our head of state, rather than the Queen is officially Australia's head of state. So our head of state is not an Australian. Um, and who liked that concept, didn't like the fact that they were being given a particular model, um, a minimalist model, um, they weren't been giving a full range of alternatives. So that a lot of the people who voted no to the Republic in 1999 actually did support a Republic, but they didn't like that particular model. Yes, Paul. So, um, sorry, that was, I didn't mash the button. Um, that's, that's exactly what happened to me, Andrew. I was, I was, I was 18, I just turned 18 and it was, um, it was the first, uh, it was concurrent with the election, um, the referendum. Um, and I, um, I actually voted no, and now I, I, I wish I had voted yes because that that the the um, the uh, republic with a president selected by two thirds of the parliament is 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 by far the superior model as as opposed to what was you know bandied around at the time as the American model, um, which would have been an absolute disaster for Australia, I think, and and it just goes to show the power of um, messaging and media in the um, in the process as well. Um, yeah, I, I think that that would have been a good result if we had voted yes to that, that referendum. Yes, and a lot of people felt that way. I mean, I I was in the category of people voting yes but wanting more than what was offered. So the argument was being put: if if you don't think this is a good enough model, don't vote no, vote yes, and then we you know we can we can improve on it. I think some people who voted for Brexit were voting for a whole range of reasons. The slogan that was used in the Republic referendum in Australia, Tony Abbott led the campaign against the Republic, and he, but the slogan wasn't, God save the Queen, we love the monarchy. The slogan was, vote no to the politicians' Republic. That was the slogan that cut through. So they're saying, these people are trying to give you a, a phony Republic in which you won't have a real say, direct election of a president. Um, and people like that, yeah, they responded to that because they said that this is an anti-political um, opportunity to, to stick it up the establishment. And I think you'll find that that was the sentiment being expressed in what have been called the red wall areas of Britain. Now, Ben, your mother voted against the Republic because she thought it would cost too much. Every sign, envelope, etc., would need to be remade. Yes, we have to get all the, the Queen taken off all the future coins. Well, I think we can manage that, couldn't we? I mean... Um, you know, I mean, new, new coins are struck. Yeah, I mean, and they would keep our old ones as collector's items. We can sell them for a fortune on eBay one day. Um, but interesting, interesting reasons um, people give. So I think one of the big issues here is referendum. Now, had the referendum come about, it was a push from the right of the Conservative Party. People like uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, um, who I find one of the most annoying, obnoxious people, real upper class twit, I reckon, but anyway, that's just my personal opinion. Um, Boris Johnson in the Conservative Party. David Cameron was a moderate. He was more like a Turnbull-type figure, and he didn't support Brexit, but he was the Prime Minister of Britain. He was the leader of the Conservative Party, and he was sick of the right wing of the party saying, we want a referendum, we want a referendum. So he said, yes, all right, you can have your bloody referendum, and he, he thought that he could win it. He thought that he could let the right wing have their referendum. They, they'd campaign and they'd lose that he and Labor, you know, the small L Liberals, the small C Conservatives, and enough Labor people would vote against it and it would fail. Well, that's where he made a big mistake. And that was the end of his prime ministership. As soon as the Brexit vote passed, David Cameron went. 
um, and his successor, Theresa May, had also opposed Brexit, but she stopped Boris Johnson from initially becoming Prime Minister. She was seen as a compromise candidate. She was there for a while. I'll check before tomorrow's lecture. It seemed like she was there for a couple of years to me, but I'll have to check that. But Boris Johnson continued what he'd, he and Nigel Farage had succeeded with the Brexit referendum and eventually became Prime Minister, and he won his own election victory in 2019. And I don't find him a very appealing character, actually, Boris. Um, but, you know, nations do elect odd people sometimes as their leaders, and we have to understand that. We can't, you know, one, one of the things we have to understand with Boris's support is that he's got some from the north of England. Whether he'll keep it, though, is, a matter, is another matter. There's a lot of interesting stuff being written about the Red Wall, a book which I'll refer to tomorrow. The Red Wall areas that fell in the Brexit referendum in the north of England, that fell and went from Labor to Conservative for the first time in their history in the north of England in 2019. What do those voters want? What will bring them back to the Labor Party? A lot of trade unions and Labor Party members are doing a lot of work on it. They're having serious discussions, which, which is appropriate in a democracy. If people are unhappy, you've got to find out why and you've got to try and reconnect with them. So we'll talk about that. And if, you, some of you, if some of you are particularly interested in that, you might want to think about doing your main assignment on this topic too, about the politics of Brexit and could the Labor Party rebuild the Red Wall in Britain? Um, right. Now, I'm sorry, Janali, I think, is still with us. Yes, many good topics to choose from. Well, one advantage of the um, the weekly assessments is that you do you do get to do a, a, a brief thing on each topic, even though it's, you know sometimes that can be frustrating because it's sort of, you get started and you can't go further. Um, you can only go further on one topic, but you can always read uh, for your own enjoyment. And don't forget, you can be thinking. Um, as BA students or whichever degree you're doing, whichever major you're doing, you may want to do an honours thesis in, in a couple of years' time. And if one of these topics interests you sufficiently, um, lines of inquiry might lead you to an honours thesis topic. Now, Paul, you had a question there? I just wanted to um, <clears throat> get back to the um, Goodwin and Heath reading um, and, and say to, to my cohort that it's it's a brilliant reading. It's I mean, it's it's stats heavy, but it really... Breaks down the underlying the data of 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 the um of who voted what where, um and um one of the things it was saying is that in in the largest largest um the largest leave vote was in the in some areas that had the least amount of immigration, yeah. um and that um and that you know the uh, pensioners and um less educated young people were voting for the um were voting for leave as well, which I, which I thought, which I extrapolated out to think about, um, you know, if, if they cut off immigration tap and there's not enough taxpayers to fund the welfare system, those, those young people could have, um, could have damaged the government's ability to underwrite their pensions when they retire, which I, which I, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a long bow, I understand, but it's, it's, you know, like it's, it's, it's fascinating how sometimes people can, get whipped up in the fervour and, and vote against something that, that may actually be, you know, I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but it may actually be in there against their interests. Yes, and that's that's been a big theme in recent decades in political science scholarship. Um, concern that left of centre voters are voting against their own interests. And now there's a danger, of course, in any of us saying, well, you know, you saying to any voter, um, you're not voting in your own interests, because that's that in democracy, it's the voter who decides. But in an, in the American context, even before Trump, uh, a writer called Thomas Frank wrote a book called What's Wrong with Kansas, and he was trying to explain this phenomenon: why was Kansas, um, why were working class voters in Kansas increasingly voting Republican? And a lot of it comes back to social conservatism becoming a more important thing than than uh, economic issues, partly because the political parties aren't as differentiated as they used to be in economic policy terms. I mean, working class people used to vote Labor in Britain and Australia. Middle class people voted Liberal or Conservative in Britain and Australia. Those lines have broken down a lot in more recent years. If working class people see the Labor Party as no different really on economics, 
than the Liberals or Conservatives, they may be more open to campaigns about race, um, social conservatism. Hence, uh, John Howard was, you know, people talked about the Howard battlers, that people who weren't well off necessarily, but they saw John Howard as a strong leader. Um, and similar things have been written about Donald Trump too. Um, appealing to disaffected, yes, before before Howard Battlers, there was the Reagan Democrats, thank you, Paul, and the uh, Thatcher. Uh, th one of the things Thatcher did, which some saw as gaining her votes, was that she, she, she sold off many old council houses. In Britain, public housing was broader than it is in Australia. If you, if you live in Melbourne or if you've been to Melbourne, you'll know those high-rise housing commission flats in Carlton, Richmond, um, and many people would look at those and say they're not very attractive. And you know, for poor people to be put in those high-rise blocks, uh, it's, it's, it's not a nice place to live. But in Britain, public housing was more widespread. It wasn't just high-rise cramped in. It was often quite good quality housing. Um, one of the things that she did was to, to sell council houses, public housing, and some former tenants became owners for the first time in their life. Because in Australia, home ownership is more widespread than in many countries, including in Britain, including in Europe. And, and, and the idea was put that, well, Thatcher had, had created a new generation of popular capitalists. He'd turned these former workers and poor people in their council houses and they'd owned their own home, they'd discovered freedom and prosperity. He'd also privatised big utilities, um, and, and some of the people brought shares in them. So there was this big excitement. Oh, we've got a new bunch of popular capitalists and some blue collar workers voted for Ronald Reagan. They were Reagan Democrats. And then those workers who voted for Howard, Howard Battlers. But a lot of those things have been overstated, I think. I mean, the extent to which they gained. I mean, you know, some much use uh, technically owning your own home if you can't actually afford to meet the payments. It's not much point having shares. You know, like those who discovered with the sale of Telstra, they got shares, they made an initial profit, then it went down, and then they started finding that the service wasn't as good as it used to be, because it was being run for profit um, rather than need. So people in rural areas or um, other areas that needed more subsidies um, were missing out. These are some of the underlying political dynamics um, that definitely are very alive in the Brexit referendum vote, running right through it. Um, and in some ways, that referendum vote exposed a lot about British politics and society. Another dimension to it, of course, is that Scotland overwhelmingly voted to stay in. So here you have the north of England, significant elements defecting to vote to leave Europe, Labour voters, Scotland voting overwhelmingly to stay in. And yet those places, Scotland and the north of England, are socioeconomically quite similar. But Scotland has, has forged its identity as a separate nation within the United Kingdom. They want a referendum. They tried to get a referendum to leave the United Kingdom. They want another one. The Scottish Nationalist Party dominates the parliamentarians sent from Scotland to Westminster. They've got a very popular politician there, female leader, Nicola Sturgeon. Um, so this is something we'll look at more tomorrow. Um, I'll cover in the lecture, but before we close off tonight, uh, any questions, you can ask them either in chat or uh, by speaking. Any questions or other comments? Okay, everyone's fine. Um, ben, you've pointed out you can buy your public accommodation off the government at a discount if you've rented it for seven years. Yeah, it is interesting. And that, that kind of, that was quite a smart strategy by Thatcher. So it gave people the idea that they could have control over their own housing for the first time in their lives. I mean, I guess one of the interesting things would be how much that would become a reality for how many people. Um, yes, I'm ready, Paul. Fire a question at me. Um, it's just it's a, it's a tiny, tiny bit obscure, but it, it relates to um, the referendum in, in the Brexit referendum. But um, was I correct in reading that the, that they um, they had allowed the hundred thousand signatures uh, petition to be put up in 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 front of the government um, because as part of the um, agreement with the Liberal Democrats in as in coalition. Possibly, yes, I think. David Cameron's first Conservative government was in coalition with the Liberal Democrats, yes. I can't recall the detail of that. Um, I'll have a look at that. Before. Like I said, but I just wondered if that was, you know, it's, it's, it's coalition government, because I believe that's the first 
that would have been the first coalition government? Uh, first for a very long time. The modern era? Yep. The modern era, yes. Liberal Democrats. Um, <clears throat> one of the interesting things about the British Party system is that, of course, Britain's had a lot longer continuous parliamentary history than Australia. I mean, Britain invented parliamentary democracy, with, and that's why the House of Commons and Big Ben are such major tourist attractions. Um, in Britain, the, the, the major parties were the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party. The, the Liberal Party was known as the Whigs and the Conservatives as the Tories until the 20th century. And the Liberal Party declined and the Labor Party grew up. So the Labor Party of modern, sorry, of major political parties in Britain is the youngest party. In Australia, the Labor Party is the oldest major party because it was formed in 1891 in Australia. It got into government in the early 1900s in Australia. But Australia's parliamentary history only starts in the 1890s or thereabouts, a bit earlier in some of the states or colonies as they were. Um, so the Liberal Party as it was, the small, yeah, was a, was a third party, a bit like the Australian Democrats was in Australia, if anyone can remember them. Um, Paul can, I can, I don't know if other people will, but uh, a centrist party, and it, it waxes and wanes a lot. But there were, David Cameron, after Blair was first, I think it was when Blair was defeated in 2000, no, Blair was not defeated, Gordon Brown was defeated in 2010, Blair retired before then. Uh, a coalition government between Conservatives and Liberals was formed. Coalition governments had existed in Britain, I'm trying to remember the last one. I mean, certainly um, uh, there had been some in the early 20th century, but I'll have to check on that. Thanks, Paul, for pressing me on these points. It's good. It's keeping me up to the mark. Um, all of you, thank you. And uh, let's see you again next week. And if you want to make yourself visible to me, that might help me communicate better too. Paul, you're hiding behind that picture of a dog. Ben, you look like a, you know, um, you're, you're a spy. Um, uh, Chris, you know, I can hear you, but I can't see you. So, yeah, let's, let's try and make it all as face-to-face -face as possible as you can online, if you can. And uh, see you next week and look out for the lecture in the notes and, and send me if you've got an issue about uh, the referencing mishap uh, and any mark adjustments. Okay, good evening. See ya.